0: Father, I ask your presence to be with us today. Lord, I I pray for the depth of mind and of, of heart and solemnity of thought for the topics that we deal with. We want to treat sacred things sacredly and yet we want to be cheerful and kind and loving. And so I just pray that you would strike that balance today for us each. I pray that you would Help us to see and to understand and to benefit from the incredible effort that you've made to preserve information for us. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the long campaign. Where can I put this? So I, maybe I can hang that there. That's a little... Um... We're talking about the Great Controversy, basically. Um, Subtitle there, Lucifer, Lies, Love, and Logic. (laughs) Okay? I like alliteration. Don't get too hung up on that. Anyhow, um, follow me through on this, okay? We start off with the setting. Luke 10, 18. Jesus... He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Now this is just after the 70 disciples had come back from their first missionary tour. They came back and they said, even the devils are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said something that to me has always been a a complete non-sequitur. I hadn't, you know, what do you say that for? I mean, you know, it's a nice thought, but how did it ever fit there? You know, the devils are subject to us in, in your name. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he said, "Rejoice, not that the devils are subject to you, but your name is." Ri-. Now that part makes sense. I could easily understand that, you know, human pride and the whole thing, and then that, that all made sense. But I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What was the point? And specifically, when did that happen? When did that happen? Well, if you're like most Adventists, you're thinking, you know, give or take six thousand years ago, when Lucifer was kicked out of heaven, right? Is that when it happened? Okay. We're going to split this into four stages, so follow me. Here's the first verse that probably comes to mind, "...and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer, so the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast out to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him." Okay. Um, but but notice something. We were talking about I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and this verse doesn't say anything about falling. It, it talks about being where, right? cast out. Okay. So is Satan's fall from heaven the same as when he was cast out? Just you know two different expressions. Are they are they really the same thing? Some, something to think about. Okay. That um, well, doesn't show up as as much contrast as it does in some other screens. But yeah, you can see cast out there is highlighted. That's the, the point. Okay. Just uh, just something to think about. Uh, And please notice the the Bible reference, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. You're just going to want to keep those verses in thought. Okay, so this is when Satan fell like lightning from heaven. That's stage one. Stage two. The plot thickens slightly. Jesus made an interesting comment in this verse. He said, um, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's what drew my attention to this verse. Mm. Now that's kind of strange because this cast out, Jesus is talking just before the crucifixion and it's yet future. Mm. So does cast out really mean the same as fall like lightning from heaven? That made me wonder, okay? Um, And if there's a connection there, what's that do with Revelation 12, okay? Is, is Revelation 12, in some way or the other, talking about the crucifixion? yeah struck me as kind of an interesting, sort of strange thought. Um, okay, let's go ahead. Desire of Ages, 761. Christ bowed his head and died. Obviously the crucifixion. He held fast his faith and his submission to God. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Okay, well, that's interesting. Cast down. Here, here we had cast out. Here, Before that we had fall like lightning from heaven. Cast down. Now, Ellen White is using... Revelation 12, 10. Remember the verses we just quoted from Revelation? 7 through 9. She takes verse 10 and ties it in with the crucifixion. Hello? <laughs> yeah. You know, are 7 through 9 talking about 6,000 years ago and verse 10 is talking about 2,000 years ago? Eh, yeah, yeah, kind of interesting. Why is she quoting that verse talking about the crucifixion? Okay, well, let's see let's go on Um, there we have cast out and cast down highlighted okay is there a difference or are they all the same what's going on try this one after the crucifixion Satan saw that he had overreached himself Mm -hmm. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away that the character he had tried to fasten on Christ was fastened on himself it was as if he had the second time fallen from heaven really? Huh. <laughs> at the cross, Satan fell from heaven at the time of the cross. Interesting. Okay. Um, okay, we've already emphasized that. It's, it's like there's something going on between these two events of the expulsion of Lucifer and the, and the, the crucifixion that is somehow so similar that uh, inspired writers tend to, you know, they, they kind of, flip flop them back and forth and get them all mixed up. Um, Actually, strategically located in the course of the presentation Ellen White said stronger things. God looked upon the victim expiring on the cross and said, it is finished the human race shall have another trial, the redemption price was paid and Satan fell like lightning from heaven. That's a cross. Okay, works for me. There comes a point where inspiration speaks and you just say, okay, <laughs> you know, I'm good, I'll, if I can understand it, you know, I don't have to understand all the reasons, okay, I'm good. So that's stage one and stage two. Logically enough, stage three. Yes, this passage looks familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> Revelation 12, 10 to 12. Go through this now. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Revelation 12. 10 to 12. Just look at a few of the particulars here. The accuser of our brethren has been cast down. Okay. They overcame him. They did not love their lives to the death. Heaven is rejoicing because they overcame That's what the word therefore means, you know, because of the foregoing, right? Therefore, heaven's rejoicing. Because this group overcame Satan, okay? Um, Heaven is rejoicing. Everyone who lives there is very happy. But it's not good news for the people on earth. Um, They live in the wrong spot. And the devil is great wrath because he has a short time. Okay. Now, let's just put those all into conjunction here. Stage three. Just read this list of events, okay? The accuser of the brethren has been cast down. A group of people have beaten the devil, placing their lives at risk in the process. Because they overcame, everyone in heaven rejoices. Everyone on earth or in the sea is in trouble because the devil's running out of time, and he's really mad about it. <laughs> what does that time period sound like? The time of trouble. It's the time of trouble. <laughs> well, of course it's the time of trouble. It can't be anything else. But, but notice that. It's Revelation 12, 10 to 12, Mm. 7 to 9, you know, verse 10, 10 to 12, funny things going on here, okay? Great Controversy. 6.23 The Apostle John in vision heard a loud voice in heaven exclaiming Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea for the devil has now come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Revelation 12.12 12. Okay. Fearful are the scenes which call forth this exclamation from the heavenly voice the wrath of Satan increases as his time grows short and his work of deceit and destruction will reach its culmination in the time of trouble. You nailed it. Nice job. <laughs> okay. There we go, okay? So, Revelation 12 is really talking about three different time zones, or time periods, okay? Fall of Satan, 6,000 years ago. Crucifixion, 2,000 years ago. Time of trouble, hopefully sometime in the near future. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Let's not put it off any longer than we have to, okay? Um, okay. Christ's Object Lessons 296. Satan is an accuser of the brethren, and his accusing power is employed against those who work righteousness. The Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges by showing the results of obedience to right principles. Now, the thing I want you to notice here, uh, the Lord desires through his people to answer Satan's charges. Okay? The whole controversy began when Satan pressed charges against the government of God. Depending on how you slice it and dice it, there's really only about four, maybe five basic charges. Depending on how you slice it and dice it, four or three of those were answered at the cross. There's basically only one charge left. I'm not going to get sidetracked on that. There's only one charge left that's unanswered, and unfortunately, no, I shouldn't say that. Because it's God's plan, how can it be unfortunate? But anyhow, um, that involves his people. His people need to answer Satan's charges. This happens at the end of time. That's why we're still here. Steps are stage one and stage two, God took care of them with precious little <laughs> assistance from us. You know, we we provided the manpower to carry out the crucifixion. You know, that's what humanity contributed so far. Uh, but stage three, the ball's kind of in our court. We're more involved there, okay? Hold that thought. I'm going to add a couple more pieces. The completeness of Christian character is attained when the impulse to help and bless others springs constantly from within. It is the atmosphere of this love surrounding the soul of the believer that makes him a saver of life unto life. Now, I put that in there, not so much because it's important right now, but this is a huge link between this presentation and the second one. Okay. The completeness of Christian character. When we're in a position to answer Satan's charges, we're going to do that by means of a complete Christian character. Now, what does that mean? And we tend to, you know, we we can get sidetracked on these things sometimes, you know. Complete Christian character means I have to be totally vegan. Uh, You know, maybe not. Don't get me wrong. I'm vegan. I think it's a great thing. It would be tough to, you know, say that somebody who occasionally ate a piece of fish like the morning after he was resurrected type of thing, you know, didn't have a complete Christian character, you know? <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't want to try and pin that charge too tightly there, okay? <laughs> uh, but the completeness of Christian character is when the impulse to help and bless others springs forth constantly from within, okay? That's far more important than the fish. Let's go on. Stage four. Okay. Now if I put this together properly, I might have created the illusion that I figured out something great and I'm I'm a bright guy. And now it's time for me to confess I'm not bright whatsoever. (laughs) I didn't really figure anything out other than finding a few little references, okay? Um, But I want to make a point out of that, and that is it's really, really, really easy to look smart when you just stick with God's Word, <laughs> okay? <laughs> you don't have to be creative. Stick with God's Word and, and, and it makes you look good, okay? Um, there's a lesson in there somewhere, okay. <laughs> Here's where I found part four. <laughs> it, it's kind of like right back where we started, Okay. Like the apostles, the 70 had received supernatural endowments as a seal of their mission. When their work was completed, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name. Jesus answered, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. The scenes of the past and the future were presented to the mind of Jesus. Oh really? Past and future? of course. (laughs) The crucifixion was still future, okay? Right? The scenes of the past, that's easy. That's, that's, you know, well, 4,000 years before that. Lucifer being expelled, okay? Going on. He, Jesus, beheld Lucifer as he was first cast out from the heavenly places. That's definitely in the past. Stage one. He looked forward, future, to the scenes of his own agony when before all the worlds the character of the deceiver should be unveiled he heard the cry it is finished announcing that the redemption of the lost race was forever made certain that heaven was made eternally secure against the accusations the deceptions the pretensions that Satan would investigate instigate excuse me instigate that was the near future said scenes of the past and future presented in the mind of Jesus okay past near future that's stage 2 okay Beyond the cross of Calvary, with it's agony and shame, Jesus looked forward to the great final day when the prince of the power of the air will meet his destruction in the earth so long marred by his rebellion. Jesus beheld the work of evil forever ended, and the peace of God filling heaven and earth. That is stage four. That's after the millennium. Okay? That's stage four. We'll come back to stage three. Okay? Okay? Henceforward, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory for them. That victory, he desired them to accept as their own. Now, that's a more veiled reference, but that's stage three right there. When God's people accept Jesus' victory as their own, internalize it, and live it, Wham! Thing wraps up, time of trouble, okay? You know, second coming, we're out of here. When we appropriate Christ's victory to ourselves. So there you go, stages one, two, one, two, four, and three, in that order, um, handed to me on a silver platter, which is why I say, no, I'm really not that smart. Um, you know, I have a, a, a quick sales pitch. Dr. Bischoff is, has got the CD-ROMs, the L White CD-ROMs, for $20. You know, Incredible price. Uh, sell your tennis shoes or something, but go home with one of those CD-ROMs, okay? <laughs> you you got to do it. It is so so great, you know, you can just type something in your computer and you pull up all sorts of, you know, strange, obscure manuscripts, sources from the Spirit of Prophecy that you'd never stumble upon, you know, things like, like this, this great statement here that I got from... <laughs> Desire of Ages. You've got to be kidding. How many times have I taught that book and have gone over that and never seen that passage? It's right there. It's on page 490. <laughs> okay. Stages one, two, three, and 4, right there. Desire of Ages, page 490. Okay. <laughs> Let's go forward. Quick recap. <clears throat> 6,000 years ago, the members of the Godhead understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them. He was expelled from heaven. 2,000 years ago, angels and unfallen worlds understood Satan's plans and arguments and rejected them. He fell, it was as if he fell the second time from heaven, okay? Near future, hopefully, I'm trying not to be too cynical. The 144,000 will understand Satan's plans and arguments and will reject them. A thousand years after that, the wicked will understand Satan's plans and arguments. Remember the big panorama? okay? The wicked will understand the whole thing and they will understand his plans and arguments and they will reject it. Who's he got left on his side? He is entirely, completely isolated. Among the gazillions of intelligence intelligences of the universe the side or the score has been reduced to 1 to a whole whole lot more okay even though wicked reject his arguments at the final analysis this is um, <clears throat> this is this is public relations 101 <laughs> you know in, in a, in a, in, from this perspective don't get me wrong I'm not criticizing any other way of looking at the great controversy but for right now from this perspective there are only four events that matter <laughs> there are four big events one and two are done we're kind of stalled out on number three courtesy of people like me sorry you know, someday God's people will get their act together and then once we, once we get over that hurdle thousand years later bam and it's done okay And in that process, God goes through, and now the whole universe is on his side, and he can close it down. He will not end this until everyone agrees with him. He's a very patient guy. (laughs) Okay? Um, Now, it's it's stage three, of course, that we should probably be directing special attention to, because that's the one we're involved with. Okay? Okay. We're going to look now though at stages 3 and 4 in more detail because they're future and hopefully we'll gain something in this process. We start off with some very basic stuff. This is a familiar verse. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Okay? Everybody's familiar with that verse. Everyone knows the order of events. The gospel goes to the world, then the end comes. But now I want, to, I want to make you stop and think, why does it happen in that order? <laughs> Is there a reason why the gospel needs to go to all the world before the end can come? Now, you're probably thinking that's so everybody has a chance to be saved. Now, maybe you're not thinking that. But I'll forgive you if you are, because that's not the reason. God does not need everybody to know the gospel in order to give them a chance. He's been dealing with unevangelized casualties for thousands of years already. I mean, you know, how many people have died where the missionary never got to? God has some system of judgment figured out. He can he can handle that problem. He could handle it today. But there's a reason that the gospel has to go to all the world first, okay? Um Okay, so that's what we're going to look at, is why the gospel has to go to all the world. But before we do that, <laughs> I have to ask another question. Which gospel is this gospel? Uh, the everlasting gospel, okay. But just follow, I know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a flaky line of, of reasoning, but just humor me for just a moment. If the Pope could preach some sort of a... Um, Evangelistic series It was broadcast Every person on earth Would the end come? Is his gospel This gospel? Yeah I'm not thinking it is How about Benny Hinn Jerry Falwell James Dobson Joel Osteen Or other people In that category That I don't know I don't really know These guys either Tell the truth I don't spend a lot Of time with them um, If they could preach To everybody on earth would that, Would that do it? And I'm thinking, uh, I don't think so. Okay? What I want to get across here is that there is not only a quantitative element of taking the gospel of the world, there is a qualitative element. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's not just that everybody in the world heard something. It's that everybody in the world heard the right thing. Okay. Let's get a little closer to home here. Mm -hmm. What about... Jan Paulson, or Dwight Nelson, or Doug Batchelor, or Mark Finley, or David Asherick, or, and my name doesn't belong on that list, but anyhow, I put it there anyhow, you know, could I preach the gospel to all the world? Would that end it? And I'm going to be honest and say, I I don't think so. I don't think I yet understand all that needs to be understood of this gospel. There's more to learn. There's more to figure out. God's people are growing in their understanding. Okay, the younger ones here, you know, I've, I, it just like so it discourages me when I see young people who come along and they, they're somehow they're left with the impression that the gospel is just yeah 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 it's a piece of history right you know that was all figured out two thousand years ago type of thing you know and it's like yeah well we're just kind of marching in place until something happens you know but you know. This is, this is, that's, that's that's wrong. (laughs) That's just totally wrong, okay? This is the most active, dynamic field of endeavor you could possibly sink your life into. You want to be a scientist? Good. Figure out the science of salvation. You know, you want to be an adventurer? Fine. You know, go that way. You want to, you know, whatever you want to do, you know, there's something for you in this field, okay? The point is, this gospel has to be complete, mature, and powerful enough To bring on the end. Okay? To whatever extent my gospel falls short of having that kind of power and influence, I fall short of finishing God's work. Does that make sense? You'll understand more later. Okay? In the Lord's service, quality is always more significant than quantity. Our failure, my failure. To master the science of salvation is the greatest holdup in the great controversy today something is holding up the progress of things. It's at least partially my responsibility. Now we go to scripture and try to find where we're at in this process. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea saying do not harm the earth the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads and I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes the children of Israel were sealed Revelation 7 1-4 okay So, what's holding things up? Waiting for the seal. Okay? It's the sealing of God's people that is holding up God's, or I should say, the the unsealedness of God's people that's holding up the plans. Everybody with me? Make sense? Okay? Now, in a weird little play on words, Not only is our lack of being sealed Holding up God's plans It's also Holding up Satan As in He's not falling from Like lightning from heaven (laughs) Okay He's being held up By Our slowness in in Progression here Okay Just a little play on words Don't take, Take me too seriously theologically there Okay uh, Satan started falling a long time ago But we, you know, we kind of propped him up there for a while that's, that's my idea Okay. Why can't God's plans go forward without the ceiling? Why can't they? Why can't God just say Yeah, you know, we're done with this You know, we grow up with the thought It's a good thought, it's a valid thought that God is powerful and He can do anything God cannot do anything in the unqualified sense of the word He can't move the plan of salvation forward without our seal without our our being sealed He can't win the heart of someone by force there's some things God can't do so what is it with the ceiling? What makes it necessary? And what does the ceiling accomplish? OK. Everybody with me? OK, nod heads vigorously. OK, good. OK. So what does the ceiling do? It accomplishes something. It's not just, it's not just there for window dressing. It's there because it's an inherent part of the program. Okay. Notice this verse: To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Okay. Notice it says, by the church. Okay. Somehow, the church, the church, excuse me, the church, people like you and I will provide a demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God that is so different from anything else that's ever been seen that the principalities and powers in the heavenly places learn something new. Did you hear that? You ever want to be a teacher? It's not all bad. I did it for 20 years. No. <laughs> it's got its ups and downs. The greatest lesson that a human being is ever going to teach is when God's people manifest His manifold wisdom to the everlasting education of the principalities and powers in heavenly places. That's a cool thought. I like it. Okay? (laughs) That demonstration is going to be made through the ceiling. Not, Not that ceiling. (laughs) the ceiling in the forehead okay yeah I take words too literally sometimes (laughs) I start talking about through the ceiling and it creates all sorts of distracting visual images Um, the ceiling of God's people provides this demonstration okay well (laughs) what is the wisdom of God that, I mean, that, that's a dumb question. I mean, it, it, it almost sounds presumptuous. Or, or, you know, if you did it with the wrong tone of voice or something, you, it could almost be blasphemous. And I don't mean that in any sense. But what is it that we're supposed to be manifesting? What is this wisdom of God that needs to be demonstrated? That's what the word manifest means. It's just demonstrate. What are we going to be able to show? What wisdom of God? Okay? Well, it looks like a preloaded question, right? Let's look at this question of what the wisdom of God is. What is that needs to be demonstrated? We're going to look at that from four different angles. Okay, bear with me. I know it gets complicated. Four of this and four of that, and you, know, you know, okay, four different ways of looking at this question. First question we're going to ask is what plans are being held up? Okay. What I'm saying is that the failure for God's people to be sealed to manifest this manifold wisdom of God is what's responsible for holding up plans. So maybe we can gain some insight into what that wisdom is by looking at what plans are being held up. We're going to say what wisdom of God could possibly require a demonstration. Since when does God have to demonstrate stuff? I mean, it's like, Doesn't doesn't his position qualify him to do some things without having to answer to a whole bunch of people standing around, Well, you want to see it first. (laughs) (laughs) You know? What's up with that? Okay? What specifics need to be demonstrated? And can the ceiling demonstrate what is needed? And the absolute blessed truth... (laughs) Is it the answer? Is Yes, the ceiling can do that. So, we're going to walk our way through each of these four now and we start off with the first one. What plans are being held up? Okay? Well, we already talked about it to some extent. It's the stuff we started talking about at the end, okay? The, the end of time, that's what's being held up, okay? So, We could say everything from the ceiling on. Since the ceiling is what's holding it up, you know, nothing past the ceiling is happening yet, right? So everything from there on is being held up, and that's a lot of stuff. Okay? Too many details to put in, but there are five. (laughs) I know four questions, now five details. Trust me, it all comes together at the end. Okay. Five aspects of this that we want to look at here. The close of probation. You know, until God's people are sealed, the close of probation doesn't happen. Right after the close of probation, it's time of Jacob's trouble. After that, we have the second coming. After that, we have the reward of the righteous. And eventually, we have the destruction of the wicked. Those are the five that are pertinent to our discussion. There are a whole bunch of other things as well. And incidentally, I see some of you furiously writing notes. Bless your hearts. That's very, very, very flattering. Um... If you're interested, I'll be happy to make this, these slides available to you. You know, if you have a, a jump stick or something, you know, so, you know, you can, I don't want you to die of writer's cramp. <laughs> I, can't, can't, I can't take notes on my kind of conversations or whatever. Else. Okay. Okay, so, hold those five things in your mind. We'll come back to them. We're going to move on to our second of these four. And that was, what wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration. Who's this being demonstrated to? The principalities and powers of heavenly places. That's that's God's team. That's a loyal audience. God has to demonstrate stuff to a loyal audience? What's up with that? Okay? Don't they trust him? Well, yeah, they do. But God is so loving. He says, there's some things I'm just not gonna do until you can see it and understand it. I, I just, you know, it's cool I want to make sure you're tracking with me he says so I'm going to make sure you understand all this before we move on it's kind of like who is it Jacob I think coming back you know to the land of Canaan he moved no faster than the the little sheep could you know (laughs) okay Um, okay so what wisdom of God could possibly require demonstration well two of the five we just looked at fit into this category the reward of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked okay why well because those two things happen to be the things that satan is arguing about Okay, they're very very core to the the great controversy itself Satan says, God, you need to forgive me or change the law so I'm not guilty. And God says, I can't change the law. And you're beyond forgiveness. And Satan says, yeah, but what about these people? You keep talking about taking them to heaven. They sin too. How can you do that? Okay. Well, okay, but still, that's Satan's argument. But the righteous angels too. They have some really good reasons to be concerned about this. Number one, I'll use Gabriel's name since that's really the only angel name that I know. If Jesus came up to Gabriel and he said, Gabriel, I've got a plan. I'm going to bring that Fiedler guy up here and I'm going to put him in the mansion next to you. (laughs) Gabriel is no fool. And he would be saying, whoa. Whoa. I don't think so. I know that guy. I've watched him. You don't want him up here, Jesus. And they don't. That's where sin began. Lucifer and Gabriel were best friends. Gabriel still loves Lucifer, not his sin. And it's going to break Gabriel's heart when Lucifer dies. They don't want that in heaven. So the angels have very good reason to be worried about the reward of the righteous. Let's not do this all again. (laughs) And the destruction of the wicked, those are their friends. It's kind of like the Civil War, you know? We had brother fighting brother. Okay, what specifics need to be demonstrated? Little illustration. Suppose a math teacher gives his class a test, and everyone flunks. That's bad. Everyone flunks. But then the teacher says, seven of the students are going to get a passing grade anyhow. your curiosity would probably be raised, and you would say, Why is that? (laughs) They all flunked How do seven of them get a passing grade? And the teacher says it's because they have blue eyes Ah, blue eyes Now that wouldn't go well with a certain segment of the population would it? (laughs) Okay, some of us don't have anything anywhere near blue eyes, <laughs> you would not think that blue eyes was an, a, an adequate reason for giving a passing grade, especially not if you didn't, you know, if you didn't have them. right? <laughs> the problem is that blue eyes have nothing to do with the math test. It's just not a good reason for giving them a passing grade. So if everybody flunks, but some people get a passing grade anyhow, is there a good reason? Well, let's try this one. Let's change the illustration slightly. Maybe the teacher says, Wow, we didn't do so well on that last lesson. Let's review it for a week, and then we'll take the test again. And when they take the test the second time, seven of them pass the test. Would that be a good reason for seven of them getting a passing grade? And yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, we can see a little bit of mercy in this whole teacher thing, you know. <laughs> they should have a little mercy now and then, okay. So that would make a little bit of sense, okay, but <clears throat> um, that second test does not guarantee that those seven students will never mess up a. Math question again. It just doesn't. You no, know, it doesn't guarantee that. Just gets them past that one little hurdle, right? So, does it sound like a good idea to take people to heaven? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can say, "Well, we'll give them a second probation, and the ones who pass, then we take them to heaven." But does passing a second test secure heaven for eternity? No, unless, unless, and we'll come back to this, unless the test is actually the hardest of all possible tests and they pass that. And it can be argued that any other math question is actually a subset of the one that they passed. Does that make sense? Okay? So the test that verifies eternal security has to be the hardest of all possible tests. Okay? Another question though. What about the poor kids who took the second test and they failed it? Maybe we should review this lesson for another week and take it again and another week and take it again and another week and take it again and another week and take it again. At what point does the teacher say, I'm sorry kid. (laughs) You flunk! You're toast! This is over! You are absolutely unteachable! Now, it's not nice for a teacher to say those things. They might think them sometimes, but it's not nice to say them. And all I'm talking about is a math grade. At what point does God have justification to say, you failed your second probation. You will never make it. Now I'm going to burn you. Couldn't they make it with another probation? Another period of time? Another review? Remember, Lucifer is Gabriel's friend. Gabriel is arguing for Lucifer. Not, you know, I'm not saying, Gabriel's saying, oh he really should be in heaven, I'm not saying that. But Gabriel is standing up for every every possible hope and chance for his friends. That's what love does. That's what judgment does, by the way. Old Testament sense of judgment was always defense of the of the accused. Okay? But anyhow. Okay. How can you say that you've failed forever? Well, <clears throat> to justify his government's ruling on the reward of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked, God needs to do three things. Yes, to show that there is oops, he has to show that there is good reason some are lost and some are saved. He has to show that the people he wants to take to heaven are safe to have there. He has to show that there is nothing more that even God himself could do to help the wicked. If he can't show those things, what right has he got to ring the curtain down? What right has he got to take people like me to heaven? Gabriel, I trust, would object. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> the saved must be saved enough and the wicked must be wicked enough can the sealing demonstrate what is needed well yes <laughs> maybe I'm not surprising you with my opinion on that Okay. basic information the seal of God is contrasted with the mark of the beast a seal, an official sign of authority, gives the essential information, name, title, jurisdiction of the individual organization or government it represents. So hopefully these are not, you know, new thoughts to you. This information, the seal information is found in the Sabbath commandment. The name is the Lord, title is creator, jurisdictions, heaven and earth. You've heard all this before probably. The mark of the beast is readily identified as the claim to have changed Sabbath to Sunday. Okay, everybody's good with that. The Sabbath is the seal of God's government knowledgeable and determined opposition to God's authority in the form of Sunday exaltation is the mark of the beast, okay? A little timeline basic timeline. It's not complete, it's not to scale, don't get hung up on any of those things, okay? Um, the seal of God is placed in the foreheads in the foreheads of the 144,000 before the close of probation there's the sealing, there's the close of probation, right? The sealing is before Okay. The close of probation marks the end of Christ's work as high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Okay? You know, I used to think of the seal of God as kind of like, you know, the heavenly seal of you know, housekeeping, good housekeeping seal of approval or something, you know, it's like, oh, or you know, or like, you know, coming from a teaching perspective, you know, it's like a diploma. Oh, they passed the test, let's put the seal of God on them. Good, yeah. You know, I've never yet handed out a diploma before finals. Any of you get one before finals? (laughs) What's the point in finals? (laughs) Okay. Why is the ceiling before the close of probation? Okay. Um, The conflict between the observance of Sabbath and the mark of the beast reaches its peak during the time of Jacob's trouble when those resisting the combined religious political authority of the world are condemned to death. Time of Jacob's trouble down here. Okay. Remember? That's stage three in our four stages of the great controversy, okay? The time of Jacob's trouble. How did Jacob get into this? (laughs) Uh, I'm going to skip over this for the sake of time, but it comes from Jeremiah. That's where the name Jacob comes from, and that's a reference to Genesis when Jacob's wrestling, and the man comes up and he wrestles with him till dawn, right? Okay? And he touches the hip, and his hip goes out of joint, and he realizes who he's been wrestling against, okay? This, this is, put yourself in this position. This is from midnight to dawn. Israel is over, over near the equator, reasonably close to the equator. Dawn can't be anything more than about 5.30 in the morning, any earlier than that. Have you guys ever been in a five and a half hour wrestling match? Huh? <laughs> I never have, okay? Five and a half hours we're talking about. And this is not International Olympic Committee nice guy wrestling rules. This is this guy's trying to kill me, and my only hope is to kill him first. That yeah. goes on for five and a half hours, and then the angel touches him on the thigh, and it's it's miraculous enough that Jacob realizes that the person he's been praying to nonstop for this whole time is the one whose nose he just flattened with his forehead, whose kidneys he tried to rip out with his elbow. You know. He's been praying to this person that he's been trying to kill. Now he's going to think one of two things, and it's going to happen that fast. He's either going to say, oh, man, I am like so toast. (laughs) (laughs) This guy that's been fighting me for five and a half hours is God, and I'm going to be strung out to dry so bad. (laughs) Or he's going to say, he didn't kill me. (laughs) He could have killed me from square one. It's obvious that he loves me. I hesitate to guess what I might have thought. But Jacob thought the second. That's faith. <laughs> That's faith. Okay. Okay. Faith versus sight. And probably... Smell and the taste of blood in your mouth, okay? Jacob is not our only illustration of this, biblically speaking. Job is a great example of this too. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Of course, the ultimate example, Jesus. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Oh my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Had God forsaken him? No. It seemed like it, okay? Um, what makes this test special? Gotta go quickly Millions have faced death For their faith But what's different here In the time of Jacob's trouble This is not the normal test of martyrdom Because at this time With no high priest To intercede in the heavenly sanctuary The 144,000 feel No sense of God's abiding presence This is their experience My God, my God Why have you forsaken me? It's worse than that even Okay Every sensory input Tells them that God is their enemy That he wants to kill them you know, this only shows up in one spot that I know of clearly in the Spirit of Prophecy. Get that reference down. Why hasn't it been reprinted a dozen times? I don't know. This is to me so meaningful. Those who live in the last days must pass through an experience similar to that of Jacob. Foes will be all around them ready to condemn and destroy. Alarm and despair will seize them for it appears to them as to Jacob in their distress that God Himself has become an avenging enemy after making every possible sacrifice, after they've lost their home, they've lost their job, they've lost their family, they're out in the woods, they're surrounded by people with M16s and AK-47s and hand grenades and all this other stuff, and everybody's going to kill them, and they're standing up for God and saying, I'm doing this because I love your law, God. And then God comes up and stabs them in the back. Do they love Him now? This is what makes this the hardest of all possible tests of faith. Can you love God though He slay me yet will I trust Him? Can you love Him then? That's the test of the 144,000. And when they pass that test it proves something. It proves that they're safe for heaven. Because they'll trust Him there's, there's, there's no stronger test of faith. They will trust Him. Anytime He says something, when He says, don't go into quadrant CVW 7 they're not going to say, why? <laughs> you know? Well, there's going to be a supernova out there. Just don't do it, okay? You know, don't be asking questions all the time. Just trust me, okay? <laughs> you know? <laughs> They'll trust Him. They're always, in an infinite universe with a finite mind, there's always going to be something I don't understand. And when God says, Dave, would you just do it like this? I need to be ready to say, Oh, yeah. I trust you, God. No matter how bad it looks, I trust Him. Okay? That's what makes that so special. Um, Before we go on, I have to read, this continues on from that same quote. Dangers thicken on every side. It is difficult to fix the eye of faith upon the promises amidst the certain evidences of immediate destruction. But in the midst of revelry, and violence. There falls upon the ear, peal upon peal, the loudest thunder. The heavens have gathered blackness and are only illuminated with a blazing light and terrible glory from heaven. God utters His voice from His holy habitation. The captivity of His people is turned with sweet and subdued voices. They say to one another, God is our friend. (laughs) I thought He was an avenging enemy. But He's my friend. Okay, what does this test show? By placing God, the seal of God on the 144,000 before the most difficult of tests, God provides convincing evidence that He can correctly identify those who are safe to let into heaven. He's demonstrating something. This is not a diploma. He's proving His point. He says, this one and this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. This one. Now, we run them through the test and everybody watch them. Not one of them fails. Praise the Lord. <laughs> okay. Now, the seal is a demonstration of God's wisdom. It helps His loyal subjects in Heaven feel more comfortable with people like you and me. But it does more than that because everyone on earth at this time is familiar with this Gospel. Okay? The Gospel going to the world is really just a standardization technique. It's a good classic research procedure. You've got to get a standardized test group. <laughs> You've got to have everybody that knows the Gospel. And then God says, only those who have faith will pass the test, even though everyone knows the Gospel. It's not knowledge of the Gospel that saves a soul. It's faith. When only those who have faith pass, and all those who have faith pass, God has just demonstrated that faith is necessary, I'm using this in a logic sense since anybody is into formal logic faith is a necessary condition of salvation and faith plus a knowledge of this gospel is a sufficient condition for complete obedience God has just proven that true faith united with a knowledge of this gospel always produces perfect obedience that's so important because now my buddy Martin Luther has a chance to get into heaven. <laughs> Martin Luther didn't keep the Sabbath. He was all goofed up on infant baptism. He lived on roast beast, sauerkraut, and beer. He was German. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was not the most patient of individuals. He advocated killing all my ancestors. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Nice guy. <laughs> okay? But... He had faith. He had faith. And God now says, I can teach Martin Luther the details when I get him up here. I can explain this Gospel of the Kingdom when I get him up here. The investigative judgment has already found that he had true faith. Is it okay with everyone if I take him home with me? And there is no one on the loyal side of the whole universe that complains because righteousness really is by faith. Does that make sense? Righteousness is by faith. I <laughs> know <laughs> you've probably heard that before, haven't you? It's kind of a good, catchy little title. But it is! <laughs> right there, it's, that's how it's done, okay? Fast forward a 1,000 years. After a thorough examination of the books of record answer every question about why this one or that one is not among the redeemed, the time has come to finish sin and sinners forever. At last, the order to advance is given, and the countless host moves on. An army such as was never summoned by earthly conquerors, such as the combined forces of all ages, uh, lost my place, since war began on earth could never equal, Satan, the mightiest of warriors, leads the van, and his angels unite their forces for this final struggle. Kings and warriors are in his strain, and the multitude follow in vast companies, each under its appointed leader. With military precision, the serried ranks advance over the earth's so broken and uneven surface, to the city of God. By command of Jesus, the gates of the New Jerusalem are closed, and the armies of Satan surround the city and make ready for the onset. Something very dramatic just happened. And you probably didn't notice it. The gates were closed. That means they'd been open. (laughs) The gates had been open. These are those great big, made out of a single pearl gates, you know, those ones. They'd been open for however long. I may be reading too much into this. This is a thus saith Dave. Okay? (laughs) Take it or leave it. I won't be offended. Up to this point, I don't know of any means by which God has shown the universe it's impossible to save those who have rejected faith. The little old lady lives down the street, bakes cookies for the kids, grows roses in her Flower bed. Has a little puppy dog. It's always sweet and kind. But never accepted Jesus as her Savior. She's got a burn for that. How do you justify that? How do you say there was no hope for her? Really? She made real good cookies. (laughs) (laughs) There's no hope for her. How do you do that? Okay? The book of Record shows a lot. But, you know, some of, you know, My page in the book of record probably has more bad stuff than hers. Wouldn't one more chance for her be helpful? Wouldn't you ask? Don't we care about those people? (laughs) Of course we're going to ask. Jesus has to show. Would Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday and today and forever the one who said whoever comes to me I will by no means cast out the one who has no pleasure in the death of the wicked would Jesus let a repentant and trusting sinner into the city and I'm gonna say I think he would and that's why the doors were open but you know what nobody came The doors were open. I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to pretend. I'm pretending. I don't have a thus saith the Lord. I'm going to pretend that there were loudspeakers up there on the walls. Come on in. Please come in. And for however long they were out there building their nuclear weapons again to try and get ready to attack the city. They ignored it. There is no faith outside the walls. They distrust God in everything he's done. Please come in. I forgive you all. Of course, no forgiveness in actuality will happen because no repentance will happen. You, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying that you know that he's reopening probation. I'm saying that the probation is closed by the fact that they have no faith, and he's, he's providing a demonstration. Notwithstanding that Satan has been constrained to acknowledge, there's the, you know, the big panorama, and then niche, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Okay. Notwithstanding that Satan has been constrained to acknowledge God's justice and to bow to the supremacy of Christ, his character remains unchanged. The spirit of rebellion, like a mighty torrent, again bursts forth. He rushes into the midst of his subjects and endeavors to inspire them with his own fury and arouse them to instant battle. But of all the countless millions whom he has allured into rebellion. There are none now to acknowledge his supremacy. His power is at an utter, complete, total, final end. Period. Point. Stage four. <laughs> you with me? Nobody will ever ask that question. <laughs> I what the Bible said a long time ago. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word goes out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return to me, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed or incensed against him." That's the end of the great controversy, right there in Isaiah. This media was brought to you by Audioverse